Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Recall the uh, speaker at the dinner who got up and said, before I begin to speak, I'd like to say a few words. Um, as I was sitting there listening to the description of Valley Bait, it occurred to me that I really wasn't paying attention. I should say a few words about the fact that, of course, we're living through <clears throat> one of the great revolutionary periods of Jewish history, our people coming back into history, but in particular, in America, facing the challenge, which, of course, all religions all groups now face, which is identity in an open and free society. It's really unprecedented in human history. For most of history, we lived in separate boxes. We were separated from each other, a lot of hostility, a lot of rejection between Christianity and Judaism, between religions, between groups. So we're not used to living openly next to each other, to be exposed to each other, to learn from each other, and of course, as part of the confusion to identify and assimilate with each other. So this is a very important experiment, Valley Bet Midrash. I love the fact that it's pluralist because I think this is a challenge that all Jews face, not just Orthodox Jews, not just Reform or secular Jews. It's a challenge, as I said, that all religions face. Can we develop a serious, committed, choosing, chosen identity, not one that you're born into and stays there by inertia, not one imposed on us by hostility, rejection, anti-Semitism, but really, at the same time, a committed, because it's meaningful, because it enriches our life, and at the same time, therefore, because it's meaningful, we don't need to put down or to deny or to somehow dismiss other forms and other choices. So, it's a very exciting process to be part of that. It's a privilege to be part of that. A lot of transformation, a lot of change, and a lot of tradition at the same time. It's hard to do, and the jury is out if this experiment works, if it ends in one of the great renaissance of Jewish history, or it ends in a assimilation wipeout. We'll find out. Stay tuned. How many times I'm fascinated myself, I'm not sure myself what the right answer is. But it's a privilege to be part of it, and I really salute Valley Beit Midrash, which I think has a wonderful model of adult learning, and that's the key, because a childish, a child-born religion doesn't survive in an open and mature environment unless it grows, unless it grows up. And as I said to the group earlier tonight, before this larger public lecture, I'm particularly fond of Valley Beit Midrash because it's been led by two of my personally best and favorite students, 
um, Darren Kleinberg and now uh, Shmuel Yanklowitz. And I think, again, it takes a community to nurture, to support, to inspire high-quality people to want to be part of the community. And of course, you have it in your rabbis and in your leadership as well. So it's a privilege to be here. And that's my introduction before I begin to speak. <laughs> the topic was given me was 10 Jewish moral imperatives. Um, I decided before I answer that question, I should first tell you what definition of Jewish I'm using. Because as you probably know, depending on what definition you use, you can have a very different set of, of um, 10 choices or 10 moral imperatives. You recall the, you recall the famous joke about, about um, Moses arguing with God on the top of Mount Sinai, and you hear the voices back and forth. And finally, Moses comes down and says, look, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is I got him down to 10 commandments. <laughs> the bad news is adultery is still one of the forbidden. <laughs> In any event, the, the point I wanted to make was that um, how you define Jewish will depend on what you include or what you don't include in the Ten Commandments or Ten Moral Imperatives. So let me start with that. And I'll start with one aspect of that, and that is the Jewish people as a people is arguably the most influential people of all time in human history. That we have had more influence and more shaping impact on human self-understanding and human civilization than any other group in the world. Obviously, it's a very small group, and yet it's had this impact. Now, part of it, of course, is because our view and our teaching is not just kept by or understood by 14 million Jews in the world, but has been the shaping force for 1.9 billion Christians whose religion, in essence, is a, I believe, a parallel and in major, many ways a restatement of our core ideas. It's been a profoundly powerful impact on Islam, which is 1.1 billion people. And as I'll suggest in a moment, the main Jewish story, which is the one that I want to focus on, has also been the dominant narrative of modern civilization, and therefore has shaped not only two or three billion religious people, but two to three billion people living modern civilization, modern life, and that is the most dynamic civilization of all time. What am I talking about? Well, let me start again. Most people say, Judaism, what's the contribution to world civilization? Well, understanding belief in one God. And that is a revolutionary and overwhelming impact. I don't think that is the most influential idea, nevertheless. It's the idea that because this infinite, invisible, but everywhere universal present God deeply cares, in fact, we teach loves, loves life, loves human beings, love this earth, which is a small point of sand on a vast ocean of the universe, yet cares so deeply that God has wants and promises that this world should be perfected, that this world shall be so improved and so repaired, so completed, that it will sustain life in the highest form, that it will be a paradise for all living things, but in particular for human beings, the highest form of life. 
And according to Jewish tradition, this form of life is called the image of God. We are God-like. Human life is so remarkable. But because it is the image of God, every human being is entitled by birth, by entitlement, not by anything else, to three dignities, infinite value, my life is priceless, no amount of money is too much to spend to save it or to heal it or to educate it, equal, every image of God is equal to every other, there is no preferred image of God, neither white nor black, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither man nor woman, and every human being is unique. There is nobody else like me in the world. No one else can say, hear, do, understand what I understand, and that is a remarkable gift that should be developed. What Judaism in its revolutionary form has taught is that the status quo isn't that way. So don't accept the status quo. In the world that we live in, African children die by the tens and hundreds of thousands every year because they have no medicine for the malaria or for the dehydration, dysentery diseases that strike them. We're living in a world where women's lives are cheaper than men's. So Judaism says do not accept the status quo, rather transform it. We have a promise from God that if we work at this transformation, it will happen. And what is the transformation? Our religion teaches that we can overcome all the enemies of life so that life not only wins out, but is treated with all the dignities, including infinite value and equality and uniqueness. And one of these enemies we can overcome, poverty and hunger and war and oppression, inequality and justice, sickness. The Jewish dream is to overcome sickness, not to accept it. Of course, we're living through one of the great ages of medicine. And this teaching that humans can overcome these enemies will someday overcome. That's the messianic teaching of Judaism that not only transformed Christianity and Islam, but as I say, has become the dominant value, the dominant driving force in modernity, which basically said if humans will not wait for God, will not wait for miracles, but will take charge of their life in every area, we can, in, in commerce and industry, we can overcome poverty. In politics, we can overcome injustice, and so on down the line. That is the most influential Jewish teaching. Now, I take it, and this is the second half, in addition to this vision of human transformation and world transformation, our religion made a major contribution. There's a method, how do you go about doing this? And as you all know, we look around the world we live in today. In the last hundred years, there have been more movements of world transformation and equality and justice than ever before in human history. Among them, the most disastrous, catastrophic movements of all time. Nazism, National Socialism, which wanted to perfect the world, communism, Marxism, Maoism, and so on, the Khmer Rouge, in other words, it's wonderful to have a vision of transforming the world, but if you don't know how to do it or you take the wrong method, you can cause a total disaster. In the name of improving the world, you can mass murder and you can destroy the world. So my topic tonight of the 10 moral imperatives is, is if we see ourselves as Jews who have inherited 
the second Jewish idea, which is the teaching. In order to perfect the world, you have to enter into a partnership, what we call covenant or brit in Hebrew. This partnership is not just between God and humanity, which it is, but it's also because it can't be done in one generation. <coughs> Excuse me. It must be done as a partnership between the generations in which each generation takes up the task. It pushes the world, improves the world as much as it can. But before it dies, it raises children to carry on that tradition. It raises a new generation that takes responsibility. This partnership method, I think, is really not fully understood and appreciated. I want to come back to it at the end, because in my judgment, it's the key to one of the great challenges of American life right now, which is that in our vision of America, or to put it bluntly, making America great, <laughs> to have a country in which, in fact, all these dreams of democracy are realized, we have become polarized with a great deal of disagreement to the point of hostility and rejection and not listening, a polarization in which there's literally a kind of a total deafness to the other side. And I believe that in covenant and in partnership, we have a way of moving to correct that. So let me start at the beginning. If we accept the idea that as Jews, we are the inheritors and the ones in this generation responsible to take up this covenant, this partnership of repairing the world, of overcoming poverty and hunger and so on, what are our 10 moral imperatives? And I would start with the first three as being the outgrowth of our own history. Not only because we have a vision of covenant that the world can be repaired and we have to overcome sickness and overcome injustice and inequality, but because we have lived through in the last century the Holocaust. The greatest assault of death on life, the greatest attempt to degrade, kill, and wipe out not only Jews, but Judaism, what Judaism stands for. And therefore, as survivors, and as the continuing generation that has continued the, the covenant, despite this, we have to have extra sensitivity to the issues, how do you correct a world to make sure it'll never happen again. So the first three moral imperatives I start really our response of the tradition intensified by a reaction to the Holocaust. Number one, taking power is a moral imperative. What I mean by taking power is what we learned in the Holocaust is that Jewish powerlessness, Jewish helplessness, they could not defend themselves. They had no army. They had no country they could go to for haven. They had nobody to stand by them and stop this all-powerful, technological and military force that was brought against them, they were wiped out, or six million were wiped out. The lesson not only that Jews learned, but that the whole world learned, is therefore one has to take power. If you are a minority, if you are a vulnerable group, if you are a second-class citizen, unless you become politically powerful and active, unless you make sure that society now creates legal, political strength and protection for potential victims and vulnerable, then you will have the worst as possible. Now, as I say, this idea of taking power, the most obvious dramatic thing is Israel. I'll come back to that in a moment. But in America, it's the same moral responsibility for Jews. 
that we don't have the excuse of saying, well, we're just a minority, I'm just an individual. But in a sense, we have an obligation to join in the exercise of power in this country and to make sure that it is used for all those dignities, for equality, for full equality of people, for protecting the vulnerable, for making sure that human life is infinitely valuable, and therefore nobody should die of lack of medical treatment because they don't have medical insurance. That's a statement of what you think human life is worth. And so the first responsibility is to take power. And as I say, the irony of that is that is the great theme of modernity in general, taking power in every area, in medicine, where the conclusion was, if you're willing to study natural law, if you're willing to understand the properties of genes and of nature itself, you can literally create miracles and cure diseases that were formerly fatal and incurable. We're having major breakthroughs in overcoming poverty. When people understood that you can create industry, you can develop new technologies, you can create commerce. So the first step of taking power is not just a political for social justice, it's a broader statement of taking power to overcome the enemies of life. And so when I speak to Jews, I say, you know what the answer is? You want to help overcome the enemies of life? You can make a personal contribution as a businessman to create a business that generates wealth, that pays salaries that are a source of dignity, that pays hourly wages that people can support a family on. If you are a doctor, you can join in the process of healing or research that will develop even more healing breakthroughs. Whatever field you're in, if you are a lawyer, you can join in and develop the legal resources that are now available to the weak and to those who need help. So the first step is to understand that I can't stand by. We have to break the bystanding. The bystanding is the evil that made possible. In the end, the Holocaust, of course, was done by Nazis and evil people, but it never could have been carried out without the bystanding of the neighbors of the Jews. It never could have been carried out without the bystanding of the allies who never made a serious effort to rescue or stop what Hitler was doing. So this idea of taking power, whether it's an individual, to use my life to create wealth and share it fairly, to use my political influence to create a legal system and a political system and a government regulation that will in fact help the poor, that will in fact make room for those who are in, who need, for that matter, at least I'm speaking for myself now, that will welcome those who are refugees, that will make sure that people who have no place else to turn to escape the worst fate have an opportunity to do it. So that's the first moral imperative, which we as individuals and as Jews can respond and participate in. The second moral imperative, no less a response to the Holocaust, is what I call restoring the image of God. I said before that the Jewish tradition teaches that every human being is infinitely valuable, is equal, and is unique. What the Nazis did in the Holocaust was not just to kill Jews. They sought to degrade them, to make their life, untimension, less than human, they, to make them so despised and so degraded that no one would raise a finger to stop destruction that was going on around them. So what's the response to that? The response to that is to restore the dignity of the image of God. And every group that was treated as second class, 
every group that was treated as marginal and as vulnerable and as disposable deserves to get the attention and the support to restore it to full image of God, status, and dignity. Whether that's woman's liberation, which is one of the ornaments of this century, whether it's gay liberation, um, as a sexual minority that was treated as perverts and outsiders, whether it is colored African-American and many other colored nations that were, whose lives were shorter, whose marginality was obvious to everybody, to break the stereotypes. It's a major, major effort to restore the image of God so the fullness of their dignity and the fullness of their equality is affirmed and acknowledged both in law and in practice and in politics. That restoration of the image of God includes Jews, by the way. And again, one of the amazing breakthroughs in America of the last 30 years or 50 years was the decline, the sharp decline in anti-Semitism and the acceptance of Jews from marginal and from outsiders and as clannish and as crafty and as untrustworthy to the status that we achieved in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. Now, I'm not trying to make light of the fact that we've seen some very ugly recurrence of anti-Semitism both in the world and in America. But the bottom line is that's part of our responsibility too, to continue to affirm the image of God and the dignity and the rejection of the stereotypes about Jews as it is about all the other groups as well. And the third moral imperative, which I think comes out of this history, is again very much out of Jewish tradition. The tradition tells us we were slaves in Egypt. We should be doubly sensitive to the need to free people, liberate people. We were outsiders. We were strangers in the land of Egypt. Therefore, we are, says the Torah, you know what it feels like to be an outsider, to be a, a gear, to be to be a marginalized, rejected minority, or illegal, undocumented. Therefore, you have to be doubly sensitive and responsible to assert the dignity of these people. And I think that includes, as I see it now, wherever around the world there is genocide, there is attack on people, there is risk of destruction of people, we have to speak up, and not only speak up actively, but get our government to speak up and to be active in this area. Whether it's the Rohingya now, we see in Myanmar and Burma being driven out, being ethnically cleansed, being raped and attacked, or whether it is the Syrian refugees and the Syrian community which has been torn apart and, by, and, and, and driven out and, and degraded in so many ways, or whether it is, it's just coming up now at risk, Kurdistan, the fact is that because they dared to speak of independence or referendum on independence, the Kurds are now faced with an open threat, not only of Iraqi forces, but of Turkey and other groups helping them. And there's no question in my mind that they are capable of doing to them what the ISIS did to the Yazidis. So everywhere in the world where there are people at risk, Jews have a special responsibility to speak up and to get our government to speak up. Because bluntly, as Hillel says in the Talmud, what was done to you and was hateful to you, do not allow to do to others. And that's a major moral responsibility we share together. Now, if I've mentioned three particular 
moral imperatives that grow out of the response to the Holocaust, let me mention the next three that are particularly outgrowths of the other great historical event of this century, and that is the birth, the rebirth of the state of Israel. Again, I think future historians will say in the history of humankind, there was never such a remarkable development as a people that was killed, destroyed, instead of losing hope, instead of surrendering, responded with the greatest outburst of life of Jewish history. It's not just the rebuilding of the lives, it's the fact that Israel said when, we were, when Israel was born, that the Jews were the ones who could not get asylum, who could not get refuge, who could not be accepted in any country in the world, including the United States of America, which did not fill its quotas from the countries that the Jews were trying to escape. It did not fill its own quotas. It kept out Jews. So we are determined that in response to that, we took power and Israel passed one of its first major laws, the law of return, guaranteeing any Jew in the world anywhere, haven, safety, security, if they're in danger. And that goes without exception, whether they are people in their 70s and 80s or people who are poor or are sick. And you'd say most countries wouldn't accept them because they'll be a drag on society or an obligation that the society will have to meet. Israel's answer was no. We are restoring the image of God. We are restoring the dignity. <coughs> Having said that, the moral imperative that grows out of this, this is the one country in the world, member of the United Nations, where fellow member of the United Nations openly declare it has no right to exist, not to mention that they have over the years sought by war and by terror and by undermining to destroy it. It is a form of anti-Semitism that the one country in the world which is widely delegitimated, which is used in these most negative terms, uh, disgracefully untrue terms like apartheid, uh, used to undermine, to justify what? To justify the threat of nuclear devastation, which is now made openly by an Iran or by such countries. So we have a moral imperative to defend our life to defend our statement of life, our reassertion of life, our taking of power in order to enable life and human dignity to be restored. That's the first, that's what I call the fourth, if you will, of the moral imperatives that we should all feel together. Because again, as I said, it, Israel is very strong right now. I don't see any threat. But Iran would never dare to threaten. And if it gets a nuclear bomb, it could threaten if it wasn't for creating this atmosphere that we have a right to deny Israel's existence, it would not be able to make that threat to any other country. They hate Saudi Arabia more than they hate Israel, but they would never dare say publicly that they intend to annihilate or destroy it. So we have a major responsibility to stand up for the security and safety of Israel. Of course, a major factor there is American Jewry has managed to win the respect and the loyalty and the appreciation of the American public at large for Israel, and this is an unfinished task that we have to keep doing. The second example of this, again, in terms of exercising power as Jews, is to help Israel become a model state. That's the vision we have of covenant. The whole world will be repaired. What would the Jewish role be in this world repair? Well, part of it is to teach the idea that we've done. Part of it is to be a role model, and that's an unfinished job a role model 
how a community in America looks out for its own, how it feels mutual responsibility, and in the case of Israel, how we can create a model society. I'm very struck and very excited by the fact, for example, that is a tremendous American Jewish investment in Israel in education, in higher education. In other words, Israel is, for its own size, the most disproportionate. I saw a study two weeks ago. It has the highest college attendance, higher education rates of any of the developed countries of the world. Part of that is, of course, the government of Israel invests in it, but part of that is American Jews have given tremendous support to Hebrew University, to, to Technion, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's an unfinished job, or I, or I give an example again, and I want to use this example because right-wing or, or more right-wing Zionists have been negative or angry at the New Israel Fund, but the New Israel Fund invests also in democracy, in feminism, in human rights in Israel, I think that's an important contribution. You can argue about some of the marginal cases, and I'm not saying that one can't criticize, but the point is American Jews should feel that we have a legitimate investment in upgrading the quality of life and making Israel a role model, whether it is higher education, whether it's in human rights, or whatever. Which brings me to the third moral imperative in relation to Israel, the sixth of my 10, and that third is to help Israel exercise power morally. Now again, exercise of power is a major challenge because the truth is that if you have power, you will inflict damage and inescapably on innocent as well as on guilty people. That's the reality. If you have an army, sooner or later, you will kill some civilians, even if you do your best to avoid that. So the exercise of power morally is a moral challenge, but you have to judge it in reality, one of the problems, and uh, I want to speak how I feel about it in terms of reality. Uh, someone said it better than me, so let me quote, Justice William Brennan visited Israel in the late 1980s. He said, he gave a talk at the, uh, at the uh, Supreme Court, and he said, you know something, he said, as an American, I want to say this, every country, every democracy, even America, when you're under pressure, in wartime, when you're threatened, when you are a victim of terror, what happens is that they naturally restrict human rights. They cut back on civil rights. They close down options because they're worried, because they're threatened, because it's a strain on the democracy. He said, and he gave an example. He said, as you, as you know, in the World War II, out of fear, out of hostility, out of anger, America in turn as Japanese Americans by the hundreds of thousands. And the Supreme Court at the time upheld this as a legitimate thing where you took innocent people who are citizens of your own country and you treated them like they were prisoners of war. He said, I want to express my admiration and amazement. At that time, Israel was like 45 years old, or 50 years old. He said, in 50 years of constant war, of constant terror, of constant denial of legitimacy, there has been a steady broadening of human rights, of civil rights, better treatment, more equal treatment of the Arab minority. He says it's an amazing accomplishment, and he wants to acknowledge that. Now, my answer is, speaking 20 years later, to me, the Israeli army is a model of moral responsibility, of how do you fight a war 
in which the enemy deliberately embeds in civilian situations. Deliberately. Why? Because they think either the Israelis won't fire back because it's civilians, or if they do fire back, they'll kill civilians, and therefore they will make Israel look like it's a monster. So how do you fight a war in which deliberately the enemy picks civilian settings and reduce innocent civilian fallout? And Israel's army has been astounding in developing everything from smart weapons so you can totally focus on one building and prevent any explosion that might hit the building next door, or in developing identification so that when they fired on terrorist leaders, they could scrap at the last minute, they would scrap the mission because they were standing next to a group of civilians. Another example which has been used against Israel, but it's just the opposite. When Israel built this wall of separation between the Palestinian West Bank and Israel, of course the opposition turned this into this is an apartheid war. It's just the opposite. There was an unrelenting guerrilla terrorist invasion. How do you stop that? Classically, you know how you stop that? You invade the other side and you smash those people who support the guerrillas. You kill them. That's what happened the British did in Kenya, where they killed tens of thousands of civilians trying to get at the Mao Mao. Or in Malaysia, where Britain invaded and killed thousands of Malaysians because they were supporting this underground terrorist warfare. And the Israeli army said, we, don't, we can't do that morally. So what do you do? So you build the separations which cut, as you remember, cut the flow of terror by 90, 95%. So you save lives. And so on. And, and this is a continuous debate, a continuous challenge. So my feeling is that having done all that, it's a remarkable model. Having said that, I want to say the counterpoint. But it's a real world. And in the clash and in the closeness, uh, particularly in because of the settlements where they're mixed together, you do end up having to restrain the local population against terror, maybe, but in the end, you, you repress them, you have to control them in ways that inflict either pain or suffering. So it's a major challenge. How do you do that without becoming hardened, without becoming indifferent? So the answer, I think, is that Israel deserves and needs feedback from American Jewry. Now, again, my quarrel here is not, therefore, one can support the state of Israel, one can acknowledge, as I do, the remarkable achievements, or one can legitimately say, in this case, you overreacted, or your choice to expand settlements means that it's going to be harder to make peace with the Palestinians. These are legitimate arguments. And Israel deserves our respect to get a feedback. My quarrel inside the community is that we haven't done this the right way, meaning those who support Israel frequently are tempted to say, well, there's such evil on the other side. Whatever you do doesn't matter. It's self-defense, it's legitimate. The danger becomes on the left, as we've seen in this Jewish Voice for Peace so-called, which of course is a lie, which is actively supports and honors terrorism and terrorists, or supports BDS, which is an attempt to delegitimate its existence. So the question again is, can we develop an internal dialogue in which we disagree or we agree, but we agree within a range of respectful and honest support and a respectful and honest disagreement. That's a moral imperative, and I think one should not be embarrassed or claim you can never disagree or criticize the state of Israel. And on the other hand, we have to learn that the criticism cannot be delegitimating, cannot be exaggerated when it plays into the hands 
of those who would destroy the state of Israel. So those are three moral imperatives vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Now let me take three moral imperatives that I think apply to both Jews in America and in Israel equally, and it's a part of our special responsibility. One, of course, is the environment. Again, because of the remarkable accomplishments of this life and this century, there has been a tremendous rise in people taken out of poverty. It's something to be very proud of. More people have been taken out of poverty in the last 100 years than in all human history before, more than between one and a half and two billion people taken out of poverty. It's a remarkable accomplishment. But that very accomplishment of the increase in productivity, the increase in technology, the increase in commerce has overstepped excess. And now we have global warming, we have climate, we have species destruction. And so we have the responsibility together to assert the question of limits, to reassert the balance between increasing wealth without polluting or destroying the environment and the people around us. We have, again, a major challenge. And again, in America right now, it's clearly we have a real struggle here as our government leadership right now wants to pull out of this. So it's a major responsibility as a community and as individuals to speak up. This can't be delayed. This can't be accepted because we have it to our children. We are members of a Brit, of a covenant between generations. And to take the world that they built and to wreck it or to leave it in a poisoned and toxic fashion is, of, is a failure to understand the Jewish tradition that the world is God's, the earth is the Lord's, Hashem and we have a responsibility to treat it responsibly. We were told in the Torah that the humans were placed in this earth to protect it, to work it, to develop it, but to protect it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Second example of what I call these universal obligations uh, on, on, on both sides of the community, I would say is in eating, in creating lifestyles that are truly affirmative of life, and human responsibility. We now know much more than we ever did before. And I'll, I'll, I'll pick a controversial example because I want to dramatize how we should be thinking fresh. We now know, thanks to medicine and science, much more about healthy eating nutrition. One of our responsibilities then is to choose to eat life, to eat for life, to eat healthily, it means cut back on salt, it means cut back on sugar, it means things that we have become. America has become, not just America, the whole developed world, has become full of sicknesses of excessive food, excessive nutrition. That whole responsibility to eat responsibly and to eat healthily, and I like to stress this many times, the, the kosher, the whole concept of kashrut is the idea of eating with reverence for life. Since the Torah believes that the ideal world is that humans will all be vegetarians. In the Garden of Eden, we're vegetarians, and according to the prophet Isaiah, when the Messiah comes, we'll all be vegetarians. In fact, in fact, Isaiah predicts not only humans, but as you recall, tigers and lions will also become vegetarian. You know, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the lion will lie down with the sheep. 
Although, of course, you want to make sure you're living messianic time before you do that. Uh, uh, yeah. As Woody Allen once said, when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lamb doesn't sleep very well at night. Um, nevertheless, that's our Torah's dream. Now, the Torah permitted eating meat, but Kashrut was all about restricting eating meat, restricting the species, restricting how you kill it, restricting how you prepare it, so that even when you eat meat, to realize that you're supposed to have reverence for life, it's regrettable that you're taking the life of a higher animal in order to live on, and you should keep that under the great restrictions, how you kill it, be painless, and so on. Now my argument is, here's a chance for those who keep kosher and those who don't keep kosher to leapfrog to a higher state. Why am I saying that? I believe that what's happened in the last generation shows, number one, that we now know that humans eating meat has all kinds of serious health issues. Um, cholesterol, fat, heart conditions, and many other diseases have now been traced to this. Number two, we know that raising industrial agriculture, industrial husbandry of animals, has created a mass and cheaper food link chain, but it's also led to tremendous abuse and suffering of the animals. And number three, we understand that the environment is being stressed right now. And yes, part of the pollution is the excessive amount of raising cows and, and uh, steers and so on, all of which adds to methane gas and pollution. So I would argue that here's a chance for the Jewish people or Jewish individuals to stand up again and say, either I will stop eating meat or I will restrict it sharply, bring it down, as a statement of reverence for life, as a statement of responsibility for my own health, as a statement of environmentalism, and again, we have to break out of the easy things that the ritual people are keeping rituals. That's not good enough. It's not good enough. Kashrut means reverence for life. That means you should be asking, how else do I show reverence for life for the animals? Or reverence life for the environment, and so on and so forth. And of course, the last example I want to say of universal responsibility is that the people that it generates, the people that generates this covenantal idea, the people that have influenced the world so much, they themselves need some attention, precisely because of the challenge of freedom, precisely because of the challenge of choice and option, which we were not fully prepared for. We have a major task before us to assure the continuity and survival of Jewish people. And I think that involves reaching out to fellow Jews, those who are disaffiliated, those who are less connected, it means that those who are connected try to raise the level of their understanding, and as Valley Bet Midrash re represents, as adults to learn to understand and apply it in an effective way in our personal life. It's a major task not to shrink into our own little circle. It's a major challenge for the most traditional observant Jews not to turn their back on other Jews, and together to reach out across the lines to learn together, to learn from each other to be inspired by the idealism and the tikkun olam commitments of more liberal Jews, which the traditional Jews need to learn from, to be inspired by the learning and by the traditions that enrich life the traditional Jews have, which less affiliated Jews can learn from. This is a major challenge together, and I believe literally together, America and Israel can help each other. I was involved in the development of Birthright Israel. One of the things I love about Birthright Israel 
is that it uses Israel as a place for American Jews and for diaspora Jews to visit and be inspired, and be inspired to be more Jewish, to be inspired that there's a vital Jewish life that's flourishing there. That's the impact of Birth of Israel. And the government of Israel is a one-third partner in the costs of Birthright Israel. So the government of Israel is spending hundreds of millions of dollars to strengthen American Jewry, and vice versa. And that is exactly what we can do together. So I want to finish with the 10th and final moral imperative, and it comes back to the question of our polarized and fractured society. A lot of things I said, medical insurance for everybody, a lot of things said about making room for refugees and immigrants will not resonate very well with those who are supporters of the president and of the current administration's policies. But I don't want to give an answer tonight that sounds like it's pure politics on one side. Because I believe that there's a serious vision that the Jewish people has in this partnership idea. What partnership means is that when you want to repair the world, you have to do it together. Not to coerce, not to push your majority power and force it on the minority, but to work together literally, treat everybody like a partner, even the opposition. Listen to them. Why are they objecting? Why are they trying a different path? And see if there's some way you can meet some of the legitimate issues. So again, I think the president's rejection of all immigration is wrong. And I believe the Jewish community mostly has resisted this. And, I, and, I, and I'm proud of that. And I think it's important. Having said that, I think one should take seriously some of the underlying issues. For example, how globalization has weakened jobs and industries in America, leaving behind people who are not being taken care of. And some of those people feel that the, are worried that the immigrant labor will undercut them. So again, if you take that seriously, then you can address it and not simply say, well, you're reactionary, or you're cruel, you're unfeeling, because you don't want to make room for anybody else. I think if you come and say to the administration, it's a partnership, you can simply say, throw out all the undocumented. You can't simply treat these people like garbage, but rather partners together. Let's make an America that you will try to meet what we think are legitimate needs and do vice versa. If we disagree with the tax policy, then I think we should speak up, but by no less understand that they're also trying to argue for uh, productivity and therefore try to say, where can I meet you halfway? And in the end, I'm not rejecting you. I'm disagreeing with your policy. And we have to avoid the whole demonization, the whole total polarization, which I think fractures our society. I know it's hard to do that when you feel so strongly that these are the moral issues. How can I give in? I'm not asking to give in the moral issues. What do we learn from the Jewish history of the covenant is that if you take your opposition seriously, if you treat them like a partner, even if you compromise with them, and you delay, and that's one of the things we learn from Covenant. It goes slower, it takes more generations, but it avoids the excesses of crushing the other side, of driving them out, as we saw in all these movements that I mentioned earlier in Europe and so on. So the final challenge, I think, is to share our model of partnership and to force ourselves to listen to the other side to say, maybe I think they're wrong, but if they're a partner, you know you can't simply dismiss them. You try to listen. You try to see why they're wrong, explain them why they're wrong, but respectfully. 
And where they're right, and I'm not responding, maybe I can respond. I give the example again of political correctness. Again, I think the president's version of this, very destructive, to say things in a way that turn out to be very degrading of other people. But behind it is this issue, why is it that you can't criticize? Or in the, Char in the Charlottesville case, it was a total failure not to denounce the Nazis, but what I think he was trying to do was in part to say, there's a problem on the left. And I'm trying to say both sides are problems. Instead of saying it that way, and we do know on the radical left, we do have serious problems, disrespect for life, uh, uh, racism, anti-Israel, anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism. If he had said it that way, it would have been a lot better, but we have to say it to him then and say, well, listen, here's what you're trying to do, and we'll take that seriously. You're our partner. On the other hand, you're really wrong on this application. We won't tolerate that. We won't accept the fact that Nazis should be said, well, they're also, the other guys are also there. That's no excuse. So that's the challenge I think we have to force ourselves to think where we disagree with each other. And I would say the same for those who are much more supportive of the president. To force yourself to not slip into the habit of saying, well, they're radical, they're left, they're, they're, you know, they're not taking seriously any of my concerns, they're not really out for America. We have to force ourselves to listen to each other, to learn from each other, to challenge each other, because in the end, that's what the Jewish tradition teaches, that in partnership, we can overcome this polarization. In partnership, we can improve the environment without overregulating, without destroying jobs, or, not, or at least on balance, doing the right thing. In partnership, almost every example that I mentioned, we can preserve the family and the tradition without insisting on inequality for women or disrespect or the rejection of gay. And that's the challenge together. So the 10th moral imperative, you might say, is not only to adopt Jewish values to our policy, but to adopt the Jewish method, the method of partnership, of community, of listening to each other. And of course, we have to start by applying it inside the Jewish community. But I think we can offer it to the rest of the world, too. I think this is a chance for Jewish people to be what we always dreamt of being, not only participants in power in America as well as in Israel, but a light unto the nations, an example of how you wrestle with our challenges and choose life. Thank you. Bridge those divides, which seem uh, so, so enormous. 
Well, I must say the answer in part is uh, it's a real problem. It's a major problem. And I also will say that it's going to take a major effort to overcome it. And I'll start, since I'm Orthodox myself in my community and my training, um, of course, I'm a pluralist, and I've become a pluralist because years ago it dawned upon me that we face this challenge together, that American Jews will face the challenge of assimilation and choice, and reform is trying at best, as, as the Orthodox are trying, to deal with this challenge. And I had to learn from them, and I could work with them, and of course, Valley Ben Rush is a living example of that. So I'll start by saying this bluntly. In the Orthodox community of the last 30, 40 years, it did turn inward. I think it partly it's a panic. It's really a panic. It turned out America was more attractive. It turned out that a lot of traditional assumptions were suddenly up for question and for grabbing. Um, you know, it turned out the women, you know, were uppity and and <laughs> you know, and you sort of no, seriously, and, and so Somehow, it, I think there was a kind of a panic feeling. I don't know exactly how to do it. On the one hand, I believe this tradition is from God, and so on. On the other hand, if the woman changes her role, you know, isn't this undermining? So they didn't know what to do, frankly. So I think what happened is the majority, and I think it was a mistake, the majority turned inward and said, well, let's withdraw, we'll have less contact, less connection less connection with the reform or with the liberal or the secular Jews, so our kids won't be influenced. Well, they were frightened at the assimilation. They said, if we can somehow create a little shtetl or a little shelter or a little ghetto, sometimes the ghetto is on campus. I'm not saying it's totally physically a ghetto. Then we can somehow protect against it. And it worked to some extent. It worked in part because the non-Orthodox Jews supported, <laughs> respected, and underwrote a lot of this right-wing uh, traditionalism and withdrawal. It's one of those ironies. It's like the old joke, you know, who the atheist, with the help of God, plans to be one for the rest of his life. You know, <laughs> so the, 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 really, the rejection of the non-Orthodox Jews or the separation was made possible by the support, the respect, and the help from the non-Orthodox Jews, and I think there was an abuse there. And I think, again, it was a, it worked temporarily. But as my wife likes to say, 50 years in Jewish history is the blink of an eye. So for 50 years, it worked. I think it's run out of its functionality because the answer is you can't shelter. You can create a temporary shelter, but in the end, the internet will get you or the, or the, or the various uh, ways in which they mix. So I think it was a dead end anyway. What nearly has gone is the other way, the hard job. How do you respect tradition but recognize the truth? which we should have learned immediately from the liberal Jews, that women are fully capable of learning. Women are fully capable of leading. Women are fully capable of doing anything men can do. And therefore, the fact that women didn't do it historically reflects the reality. The Torah worked in every society. I accept that. But instead of taking the more difficult path of learning to reconcile tradition and change, God-given and human-influenced patterns, it was sort of easier to deny, reject, and to close out the door. So I think number one is, and again, I, I don't blame liberal Jews. I, many times I feel they should be insulted. I'd be insulted if I was, I mean, some of the, the language or what has happened in Israel, where the Haredim have abused their power in the coalition to block the, the wall and so on. I think these are 
embarrassments, they're disgraceful. I think uh, 50 years from now or 20 years from now, they will be gone, but in the meantime, it's very damaging. So I understand why liberal Jews sometimes get very angry and say, to hell with these guys, why should I reach out to them? You know, I'm sick and tired of being insulted. But of course, my answer is again, given the challenge, given the covenantal responsibility for Jewish history, we can't afford to do that. So we have to go back and reinvest in talking to each other and trying to learn from each other. You know, again, I, uh, this is what happened with Klal, and I'm glad you have Ali Bet Midrash here. When I started Klal, you know how I, why I started Klal? Because in the 1960s, when I discovered the Holocaust, it shook me so deeply. And I said to myself, the Christian community, Christianity has been a source of hatred and rejection of Jews, and that's what the Nazis used. The Christian, Nazis were not Christians. They persecuted Christians. But they took the stereotype and the evil image of Jews from Christianity, and they used that to demonize the Jews. So I said, I'm going to join, I'm going to join the Jewish-Christian dialogue and talk to Christians and ask them to please stop. Now, the irony was, when I did join it, I discovered, number one, is that Christians had all these organizations to bring Christians together and to bring Jews and Christians and Buddhists and Christians together. It was very moving and very beautiful. And when the people I met, they were open and they were listening and they were trying to correct their own faults. It was very inspiring. But I realized, you know, I used to get phone calls every week, come and join a Jewish Christian dialogue. No one ever called me and said, come and talk to a reform rabbi. Come, come and talk to a conservative rabbi. So I said, you know, I said, I'm going to invite an organization. But someone should call me up and say, come and talk to a... And we didn't do enough of that. Didn't do nearly enough of that. And we still have to do that. And yes, I think part of it is honest criticism. And I think it would be helpful to hear from a friend in a spirit of partnership that here you're just stereotyping or you're hating or you're defensively rejecting me because you can't handle the challenge that I've handled or you're not meeting the moral standard that I'm meeting in making women fully participatory or making or welcoming gays or other minorities that have been excluded up to now. So I think there's room for honest and critical dialogue, but we have to make that investment. And I believe that the Orthodox community can be turned around in a positive way. It's commitment, it's learning, and Shmuel is a good example, though Darren was. It has a very high-level commitment to learning and intensification. Well, share that. Inspire fellow Jews to go in for deeper learning, because in the end, in a free, open society, if you don't have mature Judaism, we'll have nothing. So what I'm saying is that, number one is that I think we are ending a period that was not good for the Jews of greater and greater separation, where the Synagogue Council of America closed down the one organization that all the groups represented part of each together. We have to rebuild some of those bridges. We have to reach out to each other. We have to make the effort to understand and not just get angry, but to try to make a, a, a better mutual understanding together. I think orthodoxy will do better when it does that. And I believe that there is a receptivity now that there wasn't there 10 or 20 years ago. So I think this is our opportunity on both sides to reach out again and to help each other. And we're not gonna make it alone. That's the other thing I keep telling people. We're not gonna make it alone. There isn't enough discipline, tradition, in the secular community or in the reform community to make it that needs to be intensified. There isn't enough openness and creativity 
and social justice in the more traditional community. It needs to be intensified to succeed in the open society. So we need to inspire each other. We need to strengthen each other. If we do that, I think we can change this pattern of the last 50 years in a much more positive direction. One more question for me, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Uh, many, many, uh, many, many American Jews not only feel alienated from Israel because of the conflict, but because uh, they get the message from Israel that conservative, reform, secular Jews don't have rights there. It's not really their home anymore. And with the explosion of birth rates in the Haredi population, the ultra-Orthodox population of Israel, uh, which appears to be the future, really, of the population of Israel, which not only is seen to be rejecting the Germany, but rejecting the rights of other populations around them. How do you see the path forward towards a more pluralist Israel? Again, you know, good. We're going to have to grow up together and work together. I believe the Haredim have abused. It's a sad story, because it's an abuse of democracy. When, this, when did this all start? In 1948, when the state was declared, Ben Gurion took the leadership here. He felt correctly, by the way, that during the pre-state period, the Orthodox were discriminated against. And that was true. They were, many times they were pressured to send their kids to non-religious schools. They were, you know, they were minority, they didn't have full rights. They were discriminated against in, in employment and so on. So he went to the Orthodox and said, look, we need a unity around this state. It's going to be a major challenge to survive. I want to get you behind this now. And what I'm promising you is that we will protect all your religious rights. We will establish them. The government will underwrite your rabbis. The government will help create an educational system for your kids that are reserves tradition. And we will underwrite it. This was all meant to be a more democratic, more universal. What, ha what went wrong is that the Haredim got stronger, the population exploded, and this was turned into an abuse system. For example, again, the exemption from the army started with several hundred people. Now, 60% of the Haredi male community does not work, which means they're living on government welfare. So it's a tragedy for everybody. First of all, Israel as an economy cannot afford it. That's why I say the 50 years are up. We're now in a new situation because the numbers being underwritten are so high and the family size so large that actually the economy of Israel cannot support it. And therefore, there's going to have to be a change. And that's my point. The success of the last 50 years was at the expense of a contribution to the tradition, uh, to the state and to the whole society. Another example, of course, is the exemption for the army. Now, what does it boil down to? It boils down to saying, I'm more religious than you. I serve God more. Therefore, I am exempt. Your kids should die protecting me, but our kids don't risk their lives to protect you. That's more religious? Where I came from, or the Torah that I studied, the definition of religion is I'm willing to sacrifice my life to try harder to protect and to help others, not to take advantage of their good will to let you get killed in my place. It's just a violation, which had, now the same thing happened with the wall and with the, so the government at the time in 48, there were no reform in conservative Jews in Israel. So the government kind of gave this blanket promise. It didn't have to deliver to the liberal. Then what happened, as you know, in the last 30 years, when the Haredim became part of the coalition, they took advantage of that coalition. They have more votes in Israel than the liberal Jews to exclude 
liberal Jews. Today, rabbis should not be recognized now with the wall to break down that compromise. It has to be changed. Now, what I want to tell you again, number one is finally more and more modern Orthodox Jews in Israel are starting to realize that it's not compatible with democracy, and it's not fair, and it's not good for a relationship with American or diaspora Jewry. So I think you have allies now. Secondly, I want to point out, for 20 years now, the Supreme Court steadily, I mentioned the widening of human rights in Israel. Well, one of the ways it did that was to increasingly narrow these privileges and these established orthodox things at the expense of liberal. They haven't gotten all the way yet, but they've gotten much distance, and it's not finished. So my point is you have a democracy in Israel which you can cooperate with. So we can control our temper and, and uh, again, you have a right legitimately to be angry, but my answer is it's too important to allow the anger to win out, but to go to Israel and say just that. We are your allies, we are your supporters, and you can't mistreat your allies. Now, short term, the prime minister wants to stay in power, and he needs those 11, 14 Haredi votes in his coalition. But the truth is that the more and more politicians, even of his own party, realize that this is a bankrupt policy and it can't go on indefinitely for that very reason. Because Israel's National Security Council said that the support of diaspora Jewry is a major strategic asset of Israel, just like an army, just like the nuclear weapons, so is the world Jewry. So I think we have a potential partnership here to change this. And I think I'm asking everybody on each side to waive the legitimate complaints and to waive the legitimate anger and to say, let's get down to breaking through to each other. Will the Haredim cooperate at first? No, they have privilege. No one wants to give up privilege and special power, but I think that they are overextended. I think, as I said, the mood underlying the country is shifting, and it's a chance now to transfer it. In the end, they will be the greatest beneficiaries because a system that is self-centered, that lives on welfare instead of being productive, that doesn't defend its own country, it's not a healthy system, and it cannot it cannot stay indefinitely. I joke about it because some, some of my Haredi rabbi friends tell me that, that in fact it is their policy. They're very negative on conversion. Why? Because they feel the rest of the Jewish people are going to assimilate, leaving only the traditional Jews behind. I tell them this is more than foolish. This is madness. The day that Israel non Haredi people disappear and you become the majority is the days we wiped out because you'll have no army, you'll have no industry, you'll have no society. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a delusion. It's a kind of delusion. Because I'm on God's side, God is going to make me sure I'm going to win it. It's a delusion of the, of the extreme order. What it has to do is to take, take the opposite position. Understand that. That it's time to grow up and take responsibility. The definition of religious is that I take more responsibility, not less responsibility. If we take that line and we're firm about it, you'll see a total transformation in the next 10 or 20 years. Taking questions. Stands up against uh, 
application of the Nazis, et cetera. Um, seemed to me not to jive with the comment that said, expanding into the settlements pushes peace further away. And where I'm, where I'm coming from this is, um, we saw, and this is as a, as a grandson of Holocaust survivors, as a student and educator of the Holocaust, and as someone who for the past 10 years has been involved in fighting the BDS movement, um, one thing I've learned is that the study of the Holocaust ends too early. Usually people stop at 45 and they don't see the movement of Nazi propaganda methods and ideology and dehumanization of Jews where it went into the Arab world. World, correct. Question, get into the question. So I'll, I'll read it, but um, in the Holocaust you had the murder of uh, 6 million of 18 million Jews. After the Holocaust, you had the ethnic cleansing of 99% of Jews from the 22 Arab countries. Went from 850,000 down to 5,000 a day. In the war in 48, you had 100% ethnic cleansing of Jews in Jerusalem and Hebron and, uh, and Gush Etzion. And in the war after 1967, getting into the question, um, you had the ability of Israel to say, we're not going to uh, necessarily enforce this ethnic cleansing of the Jews in this land. We're going to let Jews go. So if you say to the Jews today, you can't go where the people who hate Jews, the fan Jews, um, who have a, a, a neo-Nazi political ideology and believe in not living with Jews, if you're not letting Jews live there when you have the ability to allow them to, how it's a, singing of the It's a fair question. The question boils down to, how can I oppose settlements when, in fact, these settlements are in places like Hebron, Betel, classic biblical places? In many of these places, or some of them at least, there were Jewish settlements before, which were ethnically cleansed either in 48 or later times. So am I not playing the game of the haters by saying the settlements are wrong? So I'll say as follows. Number one is that I understand why Jews, particularly after 67, were so inspired. We almost had another Holocaust, and instead we had this incredible victory. And their reaction was, this is a sign from God that we can go back now and settle some of the biblical areas that we couldn't do before, or from which we were driven out. So my answer to that is, I appreciate that. I even honor that. But, but. I believe we're living in an age when you men have full responsibility. That means you have to also ask, what's the consequences of my policy? I want to go back and recover biblical Israel, but in a lot of parts of biblical Israel, there are Arab populations living there right now who are either feel that I'm, you're being imposed upon them or that their lives are being restricted and harmed to make room for your settlement, and they have tremendous anger and resentment. So here's my personal answer. My answer was, I think, the only solution is obvious, which is that the settlements in the concentrated areas, the blocks so-called, for example, again, here's one, a settlement which I was actively supportive of. In 1948, Gush Etzion, there was a, right outside of Jerusalem, there was a block of four religious kibbutzim and one secular kibbutz that was overrun by the Jordan Legion. They killed. The, the survivors of the battle. I mean, it was really cruel. They burned these places to the ground. They drove them out. In 67, this is 20 years later, the children of those people who all these years had dreamt of going back literally got together and they went back and they resettled Gush Etzion. And to me, this was honorable. This was historically right. 
and I honor that. And, I, and, and when Israel makes peace, and I believe someday it will make peace, that block will not be going back. That block, and Israel has already made this offer. The truth is 80% of the settlement population is in 6% or less of the West Bank. And Israel has made clear that it will not give those back, and I think they shouldn't. Now, the settlements out of the settlement blocks is more complicated. And I've talked to friends, some of my best friends are settlers, so I have good relationships there. Some of them, and I would distinguish again, some of them say, and here I'm sympathetic, if they really want to live in peace with us, why can't I live there? There's an Arab minority in Israel, why can't there be a Jewish minority in Palestine? And my answer is, there's a lot of legitimate in that statement, and I would, I would support you. The problem, of course, is that it's not likely to reach that level of peace at the beginning of whatever peace we make. So the then question becomes, in order to keep this uh, settlement, you have to do it when they're still not that ripe and that kind about it. So what's going to happen? So you'll be vulnerable, dangerous, or it can block the peace altogether. So my personal answer, and now the second type of settler has gone much further. Now they're saying, I don't want two states. I want one state. We will settle the West Bank. We'll be a majority. It turns out there's more Jews uh, reproducing. Uh, the settlers have a higher rate of birth rate, and the Arab rate is lower than was so we can hold it. I think that's a huge illusion and a mistake because, again, even if it's true that you will be 50% or 60% into 40%, no democracy can survive with 40% angry, hated, and feeling rejected. And it's true, some of the anger is anti-Semitic, and we should ignore it, but it, my answer is, it's reality, and you have to deal with that reality also. So my personal answer is that the Jews who settled in biblical parts of Israel, I have some sympathy for them. I think the groups that are clustered together can be engaged and exchanged, and will be. The groups that are further out, to the extent that they think they can be imposed on the other side, I think they're taking a risk, and I think it's probably not going to work, and I think it's a mistake. And it's certainly a mistake if it blocks peace. Unfortunately, the bad truth, or the sad truth right now, is that they're not ready for peace on the Palestinian side, so this is a theoretical question. I personally feel, nevertheless, you want to keep the option open of making some sort of peace. And it's clear, I want to say that again, despite the strength of the settler movement, despite the fact the government's right wing, every time there's been a serious possibility of peace, a majority of Israel puts together a government that is ready to make the peace. And um, Barack made this offer, Omer made this offer, even though they come from two very different parties. And Israel has made this offer repeatedly of giving back 94%, 92%, 96% of the West Bank and keeping just those very concentrated areas. I think that will be supported by the majority of Israel, and they will elect a new coalition if this coalition is not ready for that, if it becomes possible. Right now, the tragedy is it's not possible that the revengeism, the desire for revenge, the desire to avoid responsibility, the blaming the blaming of Israel for all its service of the failure of the Palestinian Authority and its democratic process, which is non-existent. So it's a tough period. But again, I'm arguing we should not lose hope either and take the path of saying, well, 
they're never going to have peace, so let's ram it down their throat and dominate them. I think that's not really what we want to do. And the fact is, I, I feel sad. Yes, Hebron is one of the great Jewish cities. I feel sad that in the end, either it'll be a small minority or it will have to be evacuated. It's a heartbreak. But again, in history, that's what happens. In the real world, sometimes very heartbreaking things happen. I still think that's less heartbreak than a perpetual state of war. So we have to keep trying for peace. Navigate the complexities of American Jewish life, Israel, our global situation. I couldn't think of anyone better than Rabbi Dr. Yitzchak. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.